Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. This year marks the 20th anniversary of Steven Spielberg's Amistad, a 1997 historical drama about a successful revolt among enslaved Africans aboard a Cuban ship in 1839, those Africans' subsequent recapture and detention in, among other places, our city, New Haven, Connecticut, and the subsequent landmark United States court cases that resulted in the Africans' freedom. On today's episode, we'll be talking all about Spielberg's take on the Amistad uprising and trials, how his movie holds up two decades after its initial release, and how it resonates for audiences in New Haven, where the story is so widely celebrated as one of the city's primary connections to really an international history of anti-slavery and civil rights. I'm very happy to welcome to this conversation Michael Kerbel, Joseph, who I didn't ask how to pronounce your last name at the top, Joseph <laughs> Yanielli. Yeah. Uh, oh, and Joe Yanielli. Okay. <laughs> Joe Yanielli and Steve Fortes. Michael is the director of the Yale Film Study Center, which will be hosting a free public screening of Spielberg's Amistad on Sunday, December 10th at 2 p.m. at the Whitney Humanities Center as part of their Treasures from the Yale Film Archive series. Joe is a postdoctoral associate at the Gilder Lehrman Center and is the author of a book, an upcoming book, mm -hmm. on the Mendy mission and the role of Africa in the American abolition of slavery. And Steve is a local film critic and lecturer who has taught a Yale College seminar series on African-American television and film and a common ground uh, class about film as social commentary. Michael, Joe, Steve, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you all here on the 100th episode of this program, nonetheless. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Uh, that's, I was just fishing <laughs> for compliments. Thank you, Steve. Uh, okay. So, Joe, I warned you uh, maybe a minute ago that I'm going to be turning to you first, but as the resident historian in the group, I wonder if you could uh, give our listeners who may not be familiar with the story the kind of bare-bone facts of uh, what the Amistrad uprising was uh, and the subsequent court cases. Okay, sure. So, in the summer of 1839, uh, a group of Africans were shipped from the coast of what's now southern Sierra Leone uh, across the Atlantic to Cuba uh, on the, at that time, illegal Atlantic slave trade uh, to the West Indies. Um, and some of those Africans were put on board uh, a ship, La Amistad, um, which sailed uh, from Havana to another port in Cuba. Uh, but on the journey, uh, the Africans rose up and murdered the captain and some of the crew and took control of the ship and attempted to sail it back home to Africa. Um, some of the surviving members of the crew um, decided that they were going to steer the ship towards the United States. I think they hoped to hit the southern United States where slavery was very much legal at that point um, and they could have escaped with their lives. Um, but through a variety of circumstances, the ship managed to sail up the eastern seaboard of the United States and uh, wound up off the coast of Long Island, where it was intercepted by the United States uh, Coast Guard um, and brought into port at New London, uh, where there was an initial hearing um, and then a series of trials in New Haven and Hartford, um, and the case eventually wound up in the United States Supreme Court. That's wonderful. On, on the spot, thank you for, <laughs> for giving us that impromptu sure. uh, recap. Um, and, I, and Michael, I think that the movie does a pretty good job of, uh, of covering really all of that territory that Joe just uh, lined out for us. And I wonder, you know, this movie is part of the Treasures from the Yale Film Archive series. We've had uh, Brian Meacham on uh, to, to talk about previous screens in the series, as well as Archer Nielsen. And I wonder if you could um, start off by telling us uh, a bit about the Treasure series for people who may not be familiar, and why is this movie a, a part of it? Why are you all screening Amistad this Sunday? Okay, thank you for inviting us, and thank you for the, the um, 
And congratulations on the 100th uh, show. Thank you. Um, as Joe undoubtedly can explain further, yes, the movie does uh, cover the major points, although it conflates uh, episodes, condenses, and invents a few. So um, you can call it poetic license or, or uh, playful distortions of history, but we could get into that. Uh, the Treasures from the Yale Film Archive series was now in its fourth year. It's an opportunity for the Yale community, the local community, everybody, free of charge, to come and see films on 35mm, the way they were shot and the, were, and the way they were intended to be shown. Not video, not DVD, not streaming on your cell phone, but a big screen, 20 feet wide, uh, and with nice surround sound, and this is how the film was, was made, and we're very proud to be able to present this series. It's the only venue in New Haven County where you can see uh, films on 35mm. Um, and there are many differences and, may, and, and many good reasons to show a film in 35 millimeter. Uh, we chose this particular film. This was something that we thought about for a long time because the film opened on December 10th, 1997, and we're showing it on December 10th. So it's exactly 20 years from the time it opened nationwide. However, uh, the Yale Film Study Center held a preview screening a few days earlier. In 1997, we had the first area showing, thanks to DreamWorks, which produced the film, and Steven Spielberg, the president of DreamWorks at that time, Walter Parks, who's a Yale College graduate, class of 1973, donated a 35-millimeter print for the occasion and to keep in the collection. And it is that print we're showing. It's only been shown once uh, since then. So it should be in excellent condition, and we're very proud to present this film on this occasion. What, what do you remember about that initial preview screening? Were you there? I was there, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, did, did many people show up? Because as doing yeah. research into um, you know, New Haven's connection to this story and to this film, uh, I mean, the late 1980s and early 1990s really saw a flourishing of interest in the city in the Amistad, uh, most specifically in the resurrection of the Amistad Committee, long bit led by... Uh, Al Martyr and the erection of the bronze memorial uh, to one of the leaders of the revolt outside of City Hall. Uh, this coming just, I think, five years after that sculpture went up. Uh, what, what what do you remember about the feel in the room when that uh, when that movie played? It, it was very exciting. Uh, we had, as I recall, a, an afternoon showing during the week so that we could have um, high school students come, and it was extremely well attended. It was coordinated, with, of course, with the New Haven school system. And uh, the audience, it's this, the auditorium, by the way, if you're planning to come this weekend, this Sunday, everyone, come early, first come, first seated. There's only 242 seats. We expect a, a uh, packed auditorium. At that time, we had an overflow crowd, very excited. Uh, everyone was very excited. And we, um, we didn't have the sound system we had, have now. We had uh, a more primitive sound system. So we brought in a special sound system with discs and, for the occasion, and we had spectacular a surround sound, and now we have a, an excellent system, so we'll be able to recreate that experience. But there was a tremendous amount of excitement, and and I, I'd say largely because the film had not opened yet, so this was an opportunity to get an advanced uh, screening. Steve, let's let's jump into the the movie itself. Um, so Spiel, this movie came out in 1997. It's the 20th anniversary. Uh, Spielberg had been making movies for a long time before 1997, um, but really starting in the the mid maybe 1980s with the color purple that Spielberg begin to uh, try to pursue uh, the mantle of, I don't know, being recognized as a more serious, a more serious filmmaker, filmmaker? <laughs> right? Not just the maker of Indiana Jones and Jaws. Uh, and then the early 1990s saw not just 
you know, tremendous financial box office success with movies like Jurassic World, but also incredible critical acclaim through movies like Schindler's List. And then right after uh, um, Amistad, he would make Safe and Private Ryan. And I, I wonder how uh, 20 years later, Amistad looks to you. And I don't know what, what jumps out at you about this film upon a, a subsequent rewatch. Yeah, I just uh, rewatched it uh, yesterday morning, actually. Um, I think one of the one of the main differences between this and some other films that are about about slavery um, is the not just the impact of of abolitionists and and slavery, but also that um, you get to see um, the the people that were slaves themselves actually having an active role in in what was going on and trying, especially you know Chingue in. Uh, in their defense and trying to get them free. Um, they're also very um, proud people. You get to see them really be proud. I mean, none, none of them are, are really um, kowtowing to anyone else. You know, they're very sad about things, but they're also very mad about their situation and want to be returned home. Um, you get to see a lot of, uh, of them um, in terms of their, uh, their, uh, their backgrounds and, you know, what they do. And there's, you know, one particular scene where someone dies and, um, they kind of want to take them away and put them in a, in a potter's grave and, and they, you know, revolt against that as well as, you know, when they were on the ship. Um, so that, that I think was really, really interesting, you know, and that again, different than a lot of other things that you see in, in movies about slavery. And, you know, I, th- I think that, you know, going again, going back to the movie's initial reception in 1997, Spielberg was criticized for infantilizing uh, some of the African characters in this movie. But I think that, you know, 20 years later, um, I think that uh, the collective impression of this group, even though we, you know, not every character gets the same level of development as uh, I'm going to say Sinke. I'm not sure if that's the correct pronunciation, um, but not cer- certainly he is the the focal point of of the African story, but also I think of the the story of the movie itself. And you know, getting at uh, at Michael's point about how watching this movie on on the big screen on 35 millimeter. Uh, kind of with a tremendous surround sound does, doesn't compare to watching it at home. I mean, this is one of Spielberg's many movies where the opening sequence just kind of knocks one out of one seat with the the confusion and and dynamism and and pain and fury of the revolt, uh, kind of from the unscrewing of this nail uh, that Sinclair uses to free himself and his fellow captives uh, to the ultimate, uh, quite quite gory, but also, you know, you can see some some of the sequences even reminiscent of something like Jurassic Park, where a character is pushed up against a white bed sheet and then we see a sword thrust to him and the blood splatters against the sheet. I mean, this is definitely, a, you know, a big kind of blockbuster popcorn Hollywood movie, even in its gory elements. But I think you, I think you are right on in identifying uh, the the care and attention that Spielberg has for the African characters in this movie. It's not just a matter of, um, well, maybe we'll get at this, but not just a matter of, uh, of moral redemption or illustrating a, a finer point about common humanity for the white characters in the movie. It seems to be a little bit more interested in, in the people actually kind of going through slavery as, as the redeemers. Um, Joe, as, as a historian, but also as, you know, I'm, I think that we're probably uh, similarly uh, age, we, we weren't, you know, we were uh, just kids when this movie came out, and this was my first time watching it in anticipation of the show. Hmm. Uh, I wonder, as uh, as a younger person, but also as someone who studies this stuff professionally, I wonder how the movie uh, looks to you. Oh, I have a very complex relationship with this film uh, because, on the one hand, it's it's very 
inaccurate in many ways um and it does omit things as michael mentioned and their distortions in the film and and to a certain extent you know those can be forgiven because you need to tell a coherent story right and some some events need to be condensed uh, but on on the other hand there there are moments missed i think in the film especially the role of black abolitionists um is 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 distorted and, and downplayed and there's there's sort of a composite character played by morgan freeman who represents black abolitionists and and, and runaway slaves but I, th- I felt like they missed an opportunity to really show how central black abolitionists were in the court case and their important role in bringing the captives back to africa at the end of the trials um that being said i think that it's a, a thrilling courtroom drama and as a film um it's it's really you know intense to watch uh and i really enjoy watching it as a film yeah you know, I'm well. I, I want to ask you about the the inaccuracies that jumped out at you, but actually, I, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll jump to Steve for this because I, I saw you react. But this movie actually didn't engage me as much as a courtroom drama as it did as an initial kind of action uprising film, and then even a kind of cross cultural communication, even comedy at points. There, there are quite a few humorous elements in in the feudal attempts that. Uh, the the lawyer, kind of played by Matthew McConaughey, and his linguist in one scene try to 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 communicate with people who, whom they have no idea what they're saying. But I mean, the this is, Spielberg is notorious for being a didactic filmmaker, I think, and and this one is is very much preachy, especially with as John Quincy Adams, played by uh, Anthony Hopkins, assumes a larger and larger role towards the end of the film. Did I don't know? Th- this is a long movie; it's like two and a half hours, maybe mm-hmm. a bit more. Uh, did you find yourself more partial to the the courtroom drama, the action, the the cross communication, or some a little bit of all three? Um, I think a little bit of all three, and it, you know, you also see this as, uh, as things that you see in other Spielberg movies as well. I mean, the beginning part with it with the uprising. I mean. It, kind of harkens to what's going to happen in uh, Saving Private Ryan a few years later. Um, um, Lincoln, uh, you know, goes into the abolitionist things, even even uh, one of his earlier movies, The Determinal, you know, where you get into, like, all these, like, kind of political things where, you know, uh, there's all this red tape where you, you want to do something, but you can't because there's 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 a, 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 a roadblock to it and everything. So, you know, you see these things again and again in his movies. So these seem to be things that he's he's sort of partial to. It, Michael, it is amazing how how Spielberg. I, you know, maybe this is the crux of auteur theory when applied to any filmmaker. But you know, you can take any story and you immediately recognize it as a Spielberg film. Whether the obsession with this kind of Oedipal drama between Quincy Adams and and his father, you know, especially at the end as he's leaning on the bust and fun, finally recognizing the important role that his father's played in directing his morality, the the longing that these slaves have to return home, the kind of naive. Uh, embrace of here religion i I was kind of surprised at how central role that played in in this movie but i wonder as um as uh you know an avid kind of film watcher and scholar yourself how does this movie strike you in the context of spielberg's other work and i don't know does this deserve a bit more critical and popular acclaim than maybe it received when it first came out in 97 your point about the uh, oedipal uh, theme is really interesting i hadn't thought about that but that uh, does become important really crucial in the telling of the story with John Quincy Adams speaking before the bust of his, his father and the connection between Sinke and his, his uh, ancestors. Um, Spielberg, is a very, I think, is a very admirable filmmaker. He's, uh, even in his early films, you know, the so-called entertainments or the escapist mm-hmm. films, there's something serious about it. I think Jaws can be seen as kind of a Watergate-era film about cover-ups, in in a way, and but if you take his his uh, jaws and close encounters, which has some serious themes as well, 
and Raiders and E.T. and all all of those films, uh, Spielberg has always had, I think, an ambition to make so-called more serious films. And that's evident by the way he he goes from one realm to another. So in 1993, he had Jurassic Park, and the same year, Schindler's List. Similarly, in 19... And then looking forward to 2005, he had War of the Worlds in the summer and then Munich in the, in the award season. In 1997, he had just come off Lost World, Jurassic Park, the sequel, and went into Amistad. So he has the... And, and right now, he has a science fiction film that is almost completed, almost in post... It's in post-production, ready to be released, but he rushed into production the film about the Washington Post. So that could be uh, released... I think it's going to be released next week. So he's always had these ambitions for something more serious. As far as the treatments of the ca- the captives in the film, I think uh, they had various choices. One is to have everybody speak in English, so we understand them. We don't have to have subtitles, or speak in their language with subtitles. And what they did, I think, was something in between. They speak in their native language, but very often they're not they're not, not translated. So we're placed on the outside, the same way the linguist and the other people and the, the, the attorney Baldwin are trying to um, communicate. We're, we're to see them as the other. And that sort of harkens back to the communication, say, in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And I thought that was kind of an unfortunate decision because it does place us a little bit at a distance from them and adds, it leads to some of the comedy you talked about. Um, on the other hand, the way you could look at it is that it, by placing us on the outside, it then therefore gives us the opportunity to move to the inside and to be uh, empathetic with them as the uh, Baldwin and the other characters are. The one thing I found unfortunate about the film in terms of comedy, comic relief, is the casting of Austin Pendleton as the linguist, the Professor Gibbs from Yale, who played a much more important part, I believe, an instrumental part in, in, this, in this whole process. And here he's presented in a kind of a, a hapless way, and he's played, Austin Pendleton's a wonderful actor, he's a Yale, college, Yale uh, drama school graduate. Um, and uh, but I think uh, he may have been associated in some people's minds with the hapless lawyer and my cousin Vinny a few years earlier. And there's something about the comic relief about that character that I thought was unfortunate. But you know, to uh, maybe to the movie's benefit, uh, in the ce- the central kind of the connective tissue between uh, the the Africans and uh, the uh, the kind of white New Englanders uh, proves not to be the Austin Pendleton linguist, but rather Chiwetel Ejiofor in his I believe his first first role in film uh as uh as Ansign Covey I think is his name uh a a man who speaks Mende and who the the group finds uh down by the shipyard and manages to bring in and and he really I mean he the amount of screen time that that young actor has is, is pretty incredible and of course he would go on to um star in 12 Years a Slave maybe one of the more iconic uh slave narratives uh in cinema in recent years um just get getting back to that you know that is an interesting critique I, I was actually reading an essay by historian Eric Foner, who also singled out uh, Spielberg's choice to have um, the Africans speak kind of mostly in in Mende with some subtitles uh, and and some non-subtitled as a way of distancing mainstream American audiences from you know people notoriously do not like to look at subtitles, and so that's one way that you're going to alienate an audience if you kind of require them to do a little bit of reading work. But I think that maybe one of the kind of central theses of really any Spielberg movie, but this one in particular, is when uh, Anthony Hopkins, John Quincy Adams says, "In the courtroom, the person who tells the best story wins the case." Right? It's one of these kind of grand pronouncements, but it proves proves to be true, and I think that in the pivot that this movie do- takes after Sinkway's kind of panic attack uh, in the courtroom, 
Uh, and then when he reveals in this wordless montage the story of his capture and his suffering aboard the slave ship is one done, you know, entirely, you know, really without English, without Mende, without Spanish. Maybe there are people shouting in the background, but it's really Spielberg's editing and, and Janusz Kaminski's camera work that ma- manages to communicate uh, the empathy that, I don't know, may be lacking through the, the communication. But I do want to say that um, you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHH LP, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and we're talking about Amistad, Steven Spielberg's historical drama, 20 years after its initial release. Um, I, I want to start getting to some of the New Haven connections, but Joe, again, as the historian in the room, um, you mentioned that some historical inaccuracies are difficult for you to overlook while watching this this movie. And I know that you have studied not just uh, the uh, the revolt and subsequent court cases, but also what happened af- uh, after mm-hmm. the court cases, after mm-hmm. they, um, and again, spoiler alert, but this is history, after they won their freedom uh, in 1841. Uh can you tell me a bit about what inaccuracies jump out at you and I don't know how how do they bother you in the context of this movie? I guess the 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 ending of the film is is most problematic for me um because there's this kind of triumphant scene with the British destroying the slave forts on the coast of Africa and everybody runs free right so this great white savior rides in on his ship and frees the the helpless Africans um it didn't happen like that I mean that's almost pure fiction um and slave forts didn't look like that at that time in the 19th century um, and and the film kind of short skirts the issue of what happens after the Supreme Court case. There's just kind of a brief concluding scene where they mention that Sinke, who's known as Shinbei Pie in Africa, um, returns home and finds that his family has been dispersed and his home has been destroyed, and it leaves it at that. But there's a whole other story that happens. There's the establishment of the Mendi Mission, which again is led by black abolitionists and, and white abolitionists from Connecticut and elsewhere, um, and there's the story of what happens to the Amistad captives after they return, um, when a lot of them are arrested or captured or re-enslaved or killed. Um, and it's a sad story. So you don't get to end it on that happy high note mm. that, that I think the film does. Um, and I don't think, you know, I don't think there's maybe a way to tell two stories like that in, in one film. But it does always uh, leave a weird uh, taste in my mouth when I see that last scene and say, oh, that didn't happen. That never happened. <laughs> so... Steve, I think that it is, I think we can probably all agree that it's not a filmmaker's responsibility to tell all of history, right? Inevitably, there are going to be parts of a story that uh, that you can't fit into an hour and a half, two hour, two and a half hour narrative. So one's kind of factual responsibilities fall within the limited narrative that you're telling. Um, but I also wonder if, uh, because I, I actually, from a filmmaking perspective, I think the, the closing sequence, not just the destruction of, is it Lomboco? Is that the name of the, mm-hmm. the slave fortress on the coast mm-hmm. of Sierra Leone? Uh, is one of the more stirring action sequences, but also intercut with uh, Martin Van Buren uh, tuning a harp uh, mm-hmm. to the uh, kind of implication that he's becoming more and more obsolete. Um, I, I, there definitely is an um, maybe an idealism, if not an optimism, at the end of this movie um, about how, you know, this 20 years before the Civil War begins, we're kind of leaning into uh, an embrace, a, a wider kind of national embrace of, of abolitionism. And however, um, maybe historically premature, that may be considering how early this is, I wonder if you fault Spielberg for showing a somewhat rosier ending and implying that, you know, there is kind of power and hope that can be derived from, you know, in this case, looking back to the inspiration of one's ancestors or um, maybe longing for a more equitable future. I don't know. Do you, do you find fault with where this movie ends up? Um, a little bit. Um, <clears throat> as, as, as Joe mentioned, um, it, they sort of give kind of short shrift to what 
happens afterwards. I mean, maybe that, that could be another movie at some point. Um, but I, I think, uh, probably, um, just that it's out there. Um, and, and that's something that, that hadn't been out there before, you know, a lot of people didn't know about before, especially like people in New Haven. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the producers of the movie was, uh, Debbie Allen, who's a actress and dancer and producer and director, um, said she had worked, she had read Amistad 1 and Amistad 2 and had worked for 13 years to get it made. And, you know, went to Steven Spielberg after she had seen Schindler's List saying like, you know, he, you know, here's someone I think who could, who could do justice to this particular piece. Um, he does sometimes, you know, have those things where he does, where he makes it more, more of a movie than a film. And, and I think this suffers from that a little bit. Um, but actually I'm, I'm glad that it's out there like that. Um, you know, if he wants to do something or, so, or it, it inspires somebody else to, to do something or to continue, continue with the story. Um, then I think that's, you know, to all of our benefit. And Michael, I want to give you a chance to weigh in as well on maybe not the, if we don't have to go to the specific details of the ending, but I wonder if you could share your impression of, you know, where emotionally and thematically this movie ends up. Do you find it kind of dishonest to uh, the history that it's trying to tell, or maybe is it trying to do something a little bit I'd different? Like, I'd like to leave the, the details to Joe here, but I think Martin Van Buren already had lost the election when these, when the when the Supreme Court case had been decided, it was 1840, and I think the case was decided in 1841. Am I correct? So there's kind of a cause and effect there that's suggested. Uh, it's it's kind of a mixed ending, isn't it? It has that completely fictionalized fictionalized scene about the destruction of the slave fortress, but it it does end on a kind of a a subdued note. I I, I believe it doesn't have any kind of um, I'm thinking about Spielberg's War of the Worlds, which is really, I think, one of his least interesting films, and it has a, an incredibly ridiculous ending of the family being reunited. There is nothing like that in this film where you see him coming home and they fictionalize some happy ending. Hmm. It's kind of a, a mixed uh, mixed feeling. The question about the distortions, I asked this question we, before we, we, we came on. This could be a subject for many discussions or discussions of greater length, but is it better to have a film that is historically inaccurate than none at all? I don't know the answer to that. I and, Well, actually, I feel that, that it's better to have this film because uh, if you come away with the film thinking you've learned everything about it, then, of course, you're mistaken. But if it encourages people to study more and look into it more, and in 1997, and we didn't really use the Internet that much, so you had to go to the library to look it up. Now you can Google it and find out a wealth of information, some of which conflicts with each other, actually, but I think if it encourages people to do further research, it served a very good purpose. And, uh, you know, uh, Joe, you mentioned your frustrations with uh, kind of all African-American abolitionists being embodied by this one composite <laughs> figure played by Morgan Freeman. And I think of all of the, uh, of all of the main cast members, his character has maybe done the most disservice, is, serve, uh, mm. is kind of uh, cast to serve the most didactic of roles, where mm. he really only... Um, I mean, he has maybe two or three big sequences, one in which he uh, goes below deck on the ship and uh, further empathizes with just how tenuous his freedom is and, and how um, 
how these Africans truly suffered. And then, of course, he, he gets to chastise the, the purists played by, oh, Stellan Skarsgård, anything Stellan Skarsgård is in, I, I kind of love. But the, <laughs> the way that he chastises this purist abolitionist who is willing to, you know, do irreparable harm to these individuals in order to, to further the cause. But I, I wonder if you could comment on this from, again, a, a historian's perspective. I was really impressed with the um, the diversity of kind of American uh, kind of archetypical players in antebellum America that are featured in this movie. I mean, we have this uh, kind of rascally lawyer played by Matthew McConaughey. Uh, we have judges. We have abolitionists played by Lewis Tappan. We have um, the the district attorney played by Pete Possaway. We have the president. And then, of course, we have, you know, Cinque in, among the Africans. We have another African who's discovered Christianity. There are probably eight or nine different characters who, I don't know if, if, uh, if, None maybe are portrayed in exact historical uh, um, representation. At least they get at you know who some of the you know the key types of players were in the fight over slavery. This kind of most central of American paradoxes in the years leading up to the Civil War. Yeah, I think they got the spirit of the story correct, even if they get some of the details wrong, especially the story of the solidarity between the abolitionists and the lawyers and the African captives who had to kind of overcome all of these divisions of, of race and class and geography and language um, and work together for a common cause. And that message of solidarity, I think, is the message of the Amistad, right? Um, that's why people connect to it on so many different levels, why people are still talking about it today and why it's such a big deal in New Haven, um, because New Haven is such a, a diverse city, right, in itself. Um, that's, you know, let's uh, transition into talking about this movie's resonance uh, for New Haveners and, and in, in New Haven. And Joe, I wonder if I could start with you and then we'll go around the room. Uh, could you share a bit about uh, the uh, what, what role did New Haven actually play in the history of the Amistad? Uh, how does it factor into the story? And then maybe we can talk about its representation in the movie. But first, um, where, why, why do we talk about this as a New Haven story? Sure. Well, the, the captors were held in jail in New Haven um, on a spot near where the city hall is now. That's why the, the Amistad Memorial is placed there. Um, and their jailer, Stanton Pendleton, was a really awful guy, um, and he mistreated them. And you can go into the archives at the Sterling Library, and you can read some of the letters that Cinque and the other Amistad captives wrote complaining about the treatment that they were receiving from the jailers in New Haven. Um, and so, in part, as a response to that, they were moved out to a new prison in Westville, um, down by where Stop and Chop is now on, on Amity Road. Hmm. Um, and they spent a, a number of months there waiting for the results of their trial. They didn't travel to Washington for the Supreme Court case. Um, that's kind of fictionalized in the movie. They stayed in New Haven. They stayed in Westville for that entire time. And, and when they received the news that they had won their case in the Supreme Court, it was at Westville. Um, and after that, they were moved to Farmington for another year or so before they relocated to Africa. Mm. And were any of the key uh, kind of abolitionist supporters, the members of the Amistad Committee, were they from New Haven? Were they rooted in, in this community? Yeah, Amos Townsend, who was a member of the Amistad Committee, and, and Simeon Jocelyn, who helped lead the uh, Congregational Church, which is now Dixwell Ave Congregational Church, um, still in existence, um, both helped uh, in the case. They're, they're crucial to the case. Um, Steve, you can't walk around New Haven today without seeing the word Amistad <laughs> all, all over the place, whether you go to Grove Street Cemetery, where I believe six of the, the captives are buried, and the kind of Connecticut Freedom Trail marker set up by the Amistad Committee to celebrate the history of primarily African-American uh, rebellion against the long history of slavery and racialized violence in this country. And then, of course, Amistad Academy on Edgewood Avenue, uh, one of the leading charter schools here. I wonder, you know, watching this movie as someone, I'm not sure if you live in New Haven or have spent... I do. Spent, 
so I, yeah. and how how have you lived in New Haven for I've some time? I've lived in here all my life. <laughs> well, then you're the perfect person to ask this question. I mean, what is what does this story, independent of this movie, mean to you? And also, you know, how does how does Spielberg's film resonate with you as a New Havener, as an African American? Uh, to tell me about your response to that. Um, well, it it uh, it's something that uh, resonates with me in being. Um, you know, a piece of history, you know, something that's happened here. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, you, you're, you're sort of hoping that, uh, that it will with other people as well. Um, you know, there we go. There is the schools and, and, um, and the statue and everything else. Um, the, uh, the ship that's uh, been at the port. Um, and you sort of hope that that will be something that, uh, people will want to look into, you know, and see it as a part of history and maybe have people think about things that they would like to do to, you know, further causes or, or some kind of a field that they might want to go into, whether it be uh, uh, as a lawyer or maybe uh, a politician or, you know, just do something about uh, about human rights. And do you see, I mean, I, you know, as someone who talked a lot about and movies made in New Haven, about New Haven, by New Haveners, watching this for the first time a few nights ago, I was really looking forward to seeing some, you know, representation in some way of some kind of specificity to, to New Haven. But I believe, and Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that most of the New Haven sequences are kind of in this dungeon-like, uh, this fortress where they are held captive until they um, ultimately, you know, attend their court case in D.C. and then and achieve their freedom. Now, we do see a few sequences of, you know, people uh, kind of very buttoned up praying for these uh, these captives, maybe on their on their way into and out of the New Haven cell. But does anything about? I mean, if you uh, you know were not already aware of New Haven's connection to the story, um, but from New Haven, is there anything any reason why a New Havener should turn to this movie in particular to find some kind of connection to this history that again our community has so embraced, especially in the past uh, 25, 30 years? Oh, I'm gonna, well, I, I was going to throw I that guess, to you, Steve, but uh, unless if. I Maybe think, Michael, you want to take that? Well, Steve has spoken eloquently about it. If Amistad is, it's the name of a, of a schooner. It was the name of a, uh, but it's also, it's kind of a word that can resonate. So you don't need to connect it even to a specific series of events. The more you know about them, the better. But if Amistad is kind of a word that you can use for uh, anything that has to do with inspiring people for freedom and, and inspiring people to go into the law, as you mentioned, or become a linguistics professor even, uh, it serves as a, an excellent purpose. I was thinking about the Amistad Memorial in our in our in the context of our discussion about the representation of history. The Amistad Memorial is three facets. Actually, there's a fourth. Somebody told me if you go up stairs, you can look down and see the top mm -hmm. of it. But the three you see, there's a an inscription and it explains something about the events. But you don't expect that to be everything about the events. Presumably, you would see that and be inspired to go to the New Haven Library, practically next door, or to, to the Yale Library, or to, to the Internet, and find out more about it. So I think in that, in that way, the Amistad Memorial and the film are both uh, memorials, and they are meant to inspire people. I want to say something about the, the filming. Actually, although some of it, or much of it, takes place in New Haven, none of it was actually filmed in New Haven. Uh, the seaport, the port uh, part of it, the harbor, was filmed in Mystic, and many of the other scenes, the scenes in the streets and the scene of the courthouse, and they even constructed a jail uh, in, a, in the town square. That's all in Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to see some of the locations for Amistad, go to Newport, Rhode Island, where they still exist, except the jail. That was just a set that they built there. 
Well, I'm glad that any of the movie was filmed in Connecticut. I, I just kind of assumed it was all on studio lots uh, in in Hollywood, but uh, very little of it. Yeah, well, I guess you had to I, wait until um, Indiana Jones and, and the, the Crystal Skull. Thing. Oh, yeah. 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 I think that New Havers <laughs> may associate right our city mm-hmm. mostly with with, uh, that. with that fourth uh, vehicle in the Indiana Jones movie. Um, Joe, I, I want to give you uh, the the final word uh, on this conversation. And again, I think that Michael's. Um, kind of parallel of the way that we respond to the memorial uh, outside of City Hall and the way that we respond to this movie is is pretty on point. Because again, we're, I mean, this show, even though we're talking about the history that this movie represents, ultimately, these are ways that we respond to different works of art and the way that art can inspire us to learn more about history, inspire us to act more, you know, socially engaged in our community. And I wonder how, um, well, just how, how you see the representation of New Haven in this movie, how you respond to that memorial outside of City Hall. And uh, from again, from a kind of historian's perspective, what is this? Uh, um, I don't know. Does this insp- inspire you? <laughs> uh, it is an inspiring story. I think it's a great triumph um, in, in human history that, that we, we were able to come together um, as people from all different backgrounds and and places on the, and you know on the globe and and achieve this victory for these uh captives that were illegally enslaved um and rose up and, and decided to take their freedom um i i think that you know it's it's interesting that the name of the ship was Lamastad, right because it's spanish for friendship um and it's ironic that a, a slave ship is named friendship right um but the name has been kind of reclaimed in new haven and that's i think that's a beautiful thing um, and, you know, there are aspects of the story that remain to be told, and I think there will always be aspects of the story that remain to be told. There's always something new to find out. And the Mendy Mission um, is a classic example. I'm giving a talk about the Mendy Mission um, on the Monday after the film screening um, at, at 12 noon um, at the Gilder Lerman Center. I encourage your listeners to come and attend that talk as well to learn a new dimension to the Amistad story, the African side of the story. Um, so there's always more that, that's out there, and I think the Amistad will continue to be fascinating for many generations. So we, we will definitely link to that talk on deepfocusradio.com. It's at noon on Monday at, where's the Gilder Lehrman Center? It's 230 Prospect Street. Excellent. Um, and you know, just to, to plug another kind of Amistad-related movie that screened at the New Haven Museum maybe a few years ago, I don't know if you've seen Marcus Redeker's Ghosts of Amistad, which again uh, follows a historian visiting the coast of Sierra Leone to try to track down what actually happened to these African captives after they were you know triumphantly released. And of course, it's it's more of a uh, movie about the difficulties of pinning down details in an oral historical tradition, but it's really a, a wonderful exploration of the you know Africa role and African mm-hmm. role in in this story. Um, Michael, could you remind us again where this movie is playing? Where's Amistad playing? When? How Just, much does it cost? Just kidding. The cost <laughs> is free. Uh, we don't charge for any of our showings. They're in the Whitney Humanities Center, fifty three Wall Street, corner of Wall and Church. Uh, in the auditorium, it's this Sunday, December tenth at two p.m. Well, I, I look. Thank for- you very much. Yes. Well, I I want to thank Joe Yanielli, Steve Fortes, and Michael Kerbel for coming on to talk about Amistad, and look forward to if you, if you haven't seen this movie, and if you and certainly if you haven't looked into the story, living in New Haven, this is an important part of our our national history, and also you know through the Sister City program, our connection to Freetown and Sierra Leone, this is a part of our international heritage as well. So um, I believe this weekend the New Haven People Center is giving out its annual Amistad Awards. Uh, so this um. This, this is a story that resonates for, for a lot of folks around town. But again, thank you for, for coming in and talking about this movie. And, uh, and we look forward to talking to you again. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, you can find links to uh, most of the movies and talks and other stuff that we spoke about today uh, on the this episode's uh, page at deepfocusradio.com, where you can also find now 100 episodes over two years of conversations about movies and New Haven. And we will back, we will be back with you next week for another conversation.